Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is James Lundy. He goes by Jim, who has written a new book that has gotten tremendous accolades in the local Charleston press, and it's about the history of the Poetry Society of South Carolina. And when a book about Charleston gets a good review in the local press, you know it is, as advertised, a romp of a read. So, Jim, welcome to the journal. Thank you, Walter. It's a it's a thrill for me to be here. All right, let's talk a little bit about you, uh, who you are, where you came from, your people, and why you decided to write this history. Okay, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Um, stayed there all the way until I graduated from college, and then I moved to Charleston. So I've been in Charleston my entire adult life. So, all right. So where'd you go to college? I went to college at what was then called GMI Engineering and Management Institute, formerly General Motors Institute, <laughs> and then later Kettering University. Uh, and so what, what brought you to Charleston? Well, I got a great job in Charleston. That was uh, what happened. I was looking all over for jobs after I graduated, um, had offers here and there. But when, I, when they flew me down to Charleston and I saw it, I just instantly knew it was where I needed to be. So by training, you're an engineer. Yes. So how did you get hooked up with poetry? Huh. Well, I... I, I mean, that really <laughs> seems like a... You know, engineers supposedly don't care anything about literary matter. And I would say for the most part, that's true. I, when I was in high school, I imagined myself being a journalist or a writer or something like that. And I kind of accidentally went to GMI and became an engineer. And I'm not sorry that I did, but I got out of engineering as fast as I could. I quit working in 2003. So I have not had a regular job since then. And I'm a lot more interested in literature than I am in engineering. So are you a member of the Poetry Society? I am not only a member, but I am the current president. Oh, Okay. All right. And when did you join? I first became active in the Poetry Society in 2005. Okay. And I've been on the board the entire the whole time since then. I was also president earlier. I was president for three years in between 2008 and 2011. Okay. All right. The Society has just celebrated its centennial. And, and you wrote the history. Fifty years ago, people used to call it the Charleston Poetry Society hmm. because of the dominance of Charlestonians. But I'll let you explain what the society is all about and how it came about. Okay. That Charleston Poetry Society is probably a lot more accurate than the Poetry Society of South Carolina. We were never good at being the Poetry Society of South Carolina until recently. And I think we'll talk about that later uh, when we talk about how COVID affected us. But... It started uh, with just a couple of small critique groups after World War I in Charleston. Um, John Bennett, who was a, a famous writer from Ohio who moved to Charleston, been there for already for a few decades by then. He was tutoring DeBose Hayward, who is probably the most well-known name now for mm -hmm. that people would recognize. He, His novel, Skylark. Right. John Bennett wrote Master Skylark. Yes. <laughs> I always want to say Mr. because the bio his biography written by Harlan Green is called Mr. Skylark. But um, yeah, so he and Master Skylark is one of the best selling children's stories of all time. It's remained in print for it came out 120 years ago. And it's it's and it's a good read, too, uh, even for an adult. It's it's an excellent mm -hmm. book. It's not a it's not a best-selling children's book for nothing. And he was tutoring to Bose Hayward. He had a very curtailed education. He was afflicted by polio and all kinds of things that, that from the time he dropped out of school at 14 until he was, I guess, 18 um, was when he got polio. He was working. He never, he, he really, and he wasn't a good student in the first place. And then he dropped out of school. But he was for whatever reason, he was very, very interested in writing. He had a passion for it. He might have even had a talent for it. He just, what he put on the page needed a lot of work. And he realized that. So he was familiar with John Bennett through 
social circles. I think they also served together during World War I, selling bonds, that sort of thing. They were getting together, and John Bennett would critique him and, and help him with punctuation, give him lists of, of things to read, kind of what he missed out on in his formal education. And then along came Hervey Allen. Mm-hmm. Hervey Allen, it's interesting. To th- I, I think about fame and how it, it's fleeting and how sometimes people who are not famous in their lifetime become famous after their death. Hervey Allen was very famous in his lifetime, but he's pretty obscure now. And his best-known work at that time was? <laughs> um, Anthony Adverse. Yes. It was the number two best-selling book of the 1930s. After Gone with the Wind. Wow. But he ended up having to leave Charleston. Under a dark cloud, yes. Herbie Allen, teacher at Porter Military Academy. DeBose Hayward, an insurance, he owns his own insurance company. That's one thing about him that I don't think people really understand is he was a successful businessman by the time the Poetry Society started. He was not uh, working at the, the docks and all the other stuff that he did between the age of 14 and 18. Um, He was selling insurance, and he was good at it. So the the three of them were getting together every week. Another group was getting together of women under Laura Bragg. She was to become the head of the Charleston Museum. Mm -hmm. She was from the north. She was from Massachusetts. She was almost completely deaf, which was really interesting how uh, that didn't seem to hinder her. Um, She went to a school. She could lip-read. And her, her biggest obstacle in life was the, the patriarchy. She, she was paid a pittance. She was paid less than the men uh, on her level. And um, she was always finding it hard to make ends meet. But she was tutoring um, three different women in her house uh, on poetry. They were doing the same thing that John Bennett's group were doing. And one of them was Josephine Pinckney. She was probably the richest member of the Poetry Society, had a lot of family money, and she would become famous. She would become well-known for her writing much later. And the other women were Elizabeth Miles and Elizabeth Myers. Mm -hmm. All right. So you've got two separate groups. Two separate groups. All the young people are single, John Bennett and Laura Bragg are kind of the elders in this situation. The young people, they're all single. They love the idea of intermingling with each other. They're all in the same social class. And so they eventually combine groups. Laura Bragg may have been the instigator of that. I think, for one thing, Josephine Pinckney and and DuBose Hayward knew each other. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was almost a romance there. It was was broken up by, by Josephine's mother, Camilla. She was very domineering. So I think they just knew each other anyway. Okay. And, and, and they just found out, oh, you're doing that, we're doing that. We should get together. Um, John, John Bennett disliked Laura Bragg uh, to, to, a, to a large extent because she acted like she was some sort of authority on poetry. It was new to her, too. She had just only recently become interested in poetry. And he felt like he, he, he made money uh, being a poet back in the 1800s. He, he wrote very successfully. So he felt like he was the expert, and he bristled at, at Laura Bragg. Well, many, many white Southerners, but particularly those in Charleston, were uh, more than a little ticked off by folks like H.L. Mencken <laughs> and his essay, The Sahara of the Beaux-Arts. In fact, uh, if I remember correctly, the first issue, the first yearbook, was a direct slap back at at Mencken <laughs> and all of the uh, immigrant-based writing that was going on in the North. They used some rather derogatory terms about. Yeah. Uh, they they called H. L. Mencken the uh, literary uh, General Sherman. Mm-hmm. The thing is that a lot of people have said that they started the Poetry Society in response to that Sahara the Beaux-Arts essay, but they didn't know about it then. They didn't know about it until it came out in a compilation of essays in, in 1921. So they found out about it later. They, they knew about it by the time the yearbook came out, though. Okay. When do they formally create, you know, we've got a society and we're going to have an office, you know, somebody's going to run it. <laughs> right. At this point, nobody knows whose idea it was. 
but they decided to form a poetry society of South Carolina based off of the Poetry Society of America, which had already been in operation, I think, in, from 1912. Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure about that date. So they, they'd been around. They started organically, just like the Poetry Society of South Carolina, where they were meeting in salon formats in, in somebody's living room. So the, the Charleston people felt a kinship to that. It felt like it was, it was an organization just like theirs. And I think what they imagined, um, just from what I can tell from an article, well, it wasn't an article, it was more, more like an advertisement that they took out in 1920 in the newspaper. And it, the way it described it was that the Poetry Society of South Carolina was going to be essentially a franchise of the Poetry Society of America. And the, so the, the, the PSA was going to send them readers and it was going to coordinate everything and I think that might be why they didn't know how much work it was going to be. And all that, all that caught up with them in the, in the first couple of years, just how, how bad it was going to be to run an organization like this with, with a few volunteers. Because almost from the very beginning, they wanted to have a poetry prize. Again, this is modeled on the Poetry Society of America, which means you've got to raise money. And then if you give it to somebody from off, you've got to pay for them to come. It's, it's, it, it takes money and it takes organization. Yeah. Now, the money came from the rich elite folks of Charleston who they talked into joining. There were very few people interested in or writing poetry in Charleston at the time, although it was a, a national fad or international, I guess. After World War I, people turned to poetry. There were a lot of nerves that needed to be soothed, and it was a fraught time. People came out of the Spanish flu epidemic, pandemic, mm-hmm. and um, poetry was very popular. So they, they, had, they picked a great time to start, that's for sure. Uh, DuBose Hayward, you know, knew everybody. He was from a good family, although an impoverished one. And they kind of handpicked all the top people of Charleston, invited them to this exclusive organization that was going to have a limited amount of members. And that's where the money came from. Those other folks that they brought, that they brought in, and what I have always thought about the Poetry Society, it almost became a, a nexus for the Charleston Renaissance, the other organizations, cultural organizations that these people belong to, the Etchers Club, the Preservation Society, uh, the Society for the Preservation of, of Spirituals. All, all of these folks belong to the Poetry Society. That with, seems to be one common membership. Yeah, they, there's almost a, a complete overlap. If you if you do a Venn diagram of all those organizations, it would be just a circle. Mm-hmm. It's the same people. It's all the the most elite of white people of Charleston. Of course, whites only organization, and they all knew each other. They were interrelated. They were in the same groups, the same clubs, the same churches. And they were, they were very interested. I think a lot of women, women, you can't underestimate just how much of the success of the Poetry Society was because of the women. It was run by men, and that was by design. Uh, John Bennett thought if you did not have a, man, a male president, then people would think it was a woman's club and that you would never get any men to join it. So it was run by men. But the women had tasted the working world during World War I. They had got the right to vote. Um, several of them were in the suffragist movement. Uh, Susan Pringle Frost, Clelia McGowan, they were feeling empowered. The engine of the Poetry Society was women. In fact, the membership, too, 75% female. And, and they were the ones writing the checks. <laughs> For the most part, I mean, w- one of the secrets about the South Carolina Historical Society during the Depression, it was women writing the checks that kept that organization afloat. Now, they weren't, any, they weren't officers, but they were the ones writing the checks. I think so. And you know what I noticed, too, in the membership list? I, I compiled 100 years of membership lists to analyze, to write this book. And a lot of times you'll see the membership starts with the wife. She'll have a membership. And then a year or two later, the husband 
joins up. It's brought in. Um, so they were they were recruiting. They were getting their husbands to go. And the thing is, the the, the male membership almost never climbed above twenty five percent. It was still difficult. Well, one of the things I found interesting when you said that when they would have a public reading, uh, it, it's not like today. You Spoleto is going to have these events, and it gives you know almost a year in advance. Sometimes it's very short notice when they mm-hmm. could get Robert Frost to come to town. I think at one point you they rented South Carolina Society Hall, and they had about three days public notice of the reading that was going to take place. <laughs> they operated completely by the seat of their pants, and the reason is they had to work around the schedules of these these speakers. And the speakers weren't just coming to South Charleston and then going back home. They were, they were touring. So they had to coordinate six or seven gigs mm-hmm. uh, with the Poetry Society, and they had to change things all over the place. Jim, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Jim Lundy about his new book, The History of the Poetry Society of South Carolina. All right, all right, Jim, let's let's talk about the first yearbook when they did, the society decided to do a yearbook. And it's looking at the Charleston Renaissance is quite a collection of of uh, of writers, historians. I mean, there is po- some poetry, but most of it's dealing with other things. Yeah, what they what their goal was. To, this was going to be a national journal. It wasn't just going to be a little thing for the Poetry Society members themselves. It was a national journal. They printed up 900 copies of this thing for a membership of 200. So it was not just for the members. They were These were going to be sold all over. They sent them to every library in the state. They sent them, they were sold at bookstores. And the thing is, it was a it was pretty incredible undertaking, but it was way too much to handle. And a lot of that fell on John Bennett. And one thing we didn't say when introducing John Bennett to this is he was uh, a professional writer. He, he made his living by writing, and he told, he, he loved uh, DeBose Hayward and Hervey Allen to death, but he told them he didn't want any part of this poetry society. He, he was too busy, and he couldn't help them. They said, oh, come on, You just all you have to do is lend your name to it. We'll make you the vice president. It doesn't mean anything, and you don't have to have any duties at all. And so that, that, uh, that convinced him, and he's like, okay, fine. And almost immediately, the, the, the work started piling on, on top of him. He was very bitter about it, and he was very outspoken about it too. The great thing about John Bennett is, he wrote everything down. So it's a kind of a dream to write a book where you've got so much information to draw from. His papers are collected at the South Carolina Historical Society. He, he left 30 linear feet of wow. papers. Wow. And, <laughs> if you, and, and you went through all of them. <laughs> I went through everything of the era and all of the Poetry Society stuff. He had them organized very well. Um, and he wrote these these Sunday budgets. He called Sunday budgets. Is what he called them. And he just summarized everything that happened in that week. He's long. He, he typed everything on an Underwood typewriter with the um, elite text, the really small, mm-hmm. and pretty much one side of the paper to the other, from top to bottom, no margins, six seven pages easily, thousands of words, and <laughs> it was. A, a stream of consciousness kind of thing. So I had to go through these things, and they're fascinating to read. But the thing is, I wouldn't have time. I would, I'd still be researching the book now if I read them all. So I had to scan them to try to find when he, he would just mention some some great nugget about the Poetry Society amidst all the stuff about how he went down and bought three cream sodas, and he did this and he that. And oh, by the way, last night's Poetry Society. You know, so it was. Uh, it was interesting. I would love to have time to read all of them because they're they're witty, they're well well written, they're funny, and they're just. If you, I tell you what, if you own thirty seven Legree Street, which is his house, you could know everything that ever happened to that house <laughs> in um, 
in the time that John Bennett, which is, he lived there for over 50 years. Wow. So, well, maybe that's something that Historical Society ought to put those online. Since <laughs> they're typed. You said they were typed? Yeah. Uh, what a treasure trove. Yeah. That kind of thing. If everybody wrote that much, uh, <laughs> historians would have a great time of, of it putting together what happened. But also it comes through the filter of John Bennett. He was, um, he was one of those people, he would write... He would write a six-page letter to somebody complaining about how he didn't have time to write. He was, he was I think he, he thrived on sympathy. He loved telling people how hard he worked, how hard things were for him. And I, I kept wanting to say to him, he's kind of real to you when you're reading these things. I want to say, you know, John, if you hadn't just written six pages, imagine how much writing you would have gotten done on, on your book. Well, it seemed like he also had a hard time saying no. Yes, when it came to the Poetry Society, he did. They they dumped all kinds of work on him, and he would complain about it. He would resign. He he was resigning all the time, and then he'd come. It was it was very funny because he you know he'd write these these vicious letters of resignation, just like and they'd go on for pages and pages too. All of they'd be these this litany of complaints. And then the next thing you know, he's back at the Poetry Society editing the yearbook again. The same thing he quit over the first time. And it, it, it seemed there a couple of times he really went after Josephine Pinckney saying she didn't carry her fair share of the load. Oh, yeah. And I, th- I think at that time she didn't. She was, um, she was a socialite. She was traveling all over the world. She, she had to travel with, with her, her mother, Camilla, and uh, they were— Picking up and going to Europe and New York all the time. They didn't have regular jobs. They didn't have any reason to be in Charleston, and they had a ton of money. And she would she would throw off her duties to everyone else and take off, and you wouldn't see her for three months. Hmm. Okay, the first year book was successful. Yes, uh, and it did get noticed outside the state. It did. In fact, it, well, they they were already friends with. Um, with Harriet Monroe, the editor and owner of Poetry Magazine. Mm. But she was impressed with what they were doing, and they were very confident in what they were doing. I think they were more confident in what they were doing than, than the actual quality of the work. Um, but she gave them the April 1922 edition of Poetry Magazine to edit and to do fill with it whatever they wanted. She just handed it over to them. They called it the Southern Number. And in her comments on why she did that, uh, she talked about the Charleston area and the rich racial tang <laughs> was a phrase that she used. Uh, now, there was another major poetry writing group over in Nashville, the Fugitives, uh, who considered themselves real poets as opposed to the amateurs in Charleston. And they had academic hissy fits when hmm. the Poetry Society of South Carolina got that Southern issue. Yeah, to put it mildly, they were, they were furious, absolutely furious about it. It wrote a, um, a very strongly worded letter to Harriet Monroe uh, that got them pretty much banned from being in, uh, in Poetry Magazine for the next decade. But uh, they, and it's true, they were poets. They were doing. They were succeeding in in creating a real movement, a real the fugitive poets, and it's, they're still studied today. Yeah, people like Robert Penn Warren. Yeah, Robert oh. Penn Warren, Alan Tate, Donald Davidson, they were creating a real movement. Now, the Poetry Society of South Carolina was not. They were very, very confident amateurs, and uh, that's that that kind of confidence that you have when you when you really don't know what you're doing that 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 you well and and one of the complaints that the fugitives have was that the portrait society was um, dealing with an old south that didn't really exist and there are a number of historians who believe that the members of the portrait society in all of the different aspects whether they were painters writers historians did create a myth of the carolina low country that uh, is still being sold today. 
when people talk about cultural tourism in Charleston, they're looking at the Charleston between World War One and World War Two, and that image came out of the membership of the society, not as poetry, but Herbert or Evelyn L. Sass's novels, Elizabeth O'Neill Verner's prints, uh, all of that created an image that late 20th century, early 21st century Charleston has had to has had to deal with. Yeah, I've I've read those those books uh, about creating the myth and whatever, and I don't think it was as intentional as it seems to be portrayed. I think what they were portraying was the Charleston that they remembered, the Charleston that that they they uh, had as children, and the Charleston they would like it to be. Um, they were trying to ignore the 20th century, and the, it, it it hadn't quite caught on enough that Northerners, you know, everybody was feeling it. I'm sure it was kind of shocking to to be born into a horse and buggy era and to be um, driving a car a couple decades later. So it was. I think the technology was shocking, and I think that uh, the cities grew. There was the great migration of the southern blacks to the northern cities. The cities are just teeming with people, factories, you know, smokestacks, all this stuff was happening in a very short time. And I think a lot of people wanted a, you know, this slower pace and this quieter life that they remembered from childhood. And they found it in Charleston. Uh, it was very popular for tourists and it was very popular for northern winter residents. A lot of people had homes in Charleston and they were cheap. You know, it, they loved the way they loved the way it looked. It was run down. It was moldering. The, the houses was, were falling apart. It was genteelly shabby. Yes. And of course, one of the ironies about the fugitives not caring for this old South image, the agrarians as part of that fugitive group very much wanted to go back to the land and even try it. Some of them, you know, go out on the farm, uh, don't have a radio, pluck, pluck the banjo on the, on the porch until they found out how difficult it, <laughs> it was. Yeah. Uh, but whether it was intestinal or not, that image of Charleston sold. And, and, yeah, Charleston was already changing by the time, because they're, they were saying that um, when, when DuBose Hayward finally wrote uh, Porgy in 1925 when that came out, um, people flocked to Charleston to see this rundown place that where it you know takes place, and they they had already been renovating that uh, the location on Church Street that that um, it's moved for for the novel. It, it takes place on the uh, on the water, but um, but that that was already being renovated, and and Charleston was kind of turning around. So yeah, despite that reputation for being concerned with the Old South. They brought first-rate national poets to Charleston. Yeah. And let's talk, you know, Robert Frost, Gertrude Stein. Yeah, let me let me just, uh, I got a list here. And this isn't uh, the, the whole list, but um, yeah, so Carl Sandburg, he, he was the very first guest poet that they brought in. Um, he The first meeting was just uh, John Bennett delivering a a very pedantic speech, but the Carl Sandburg came next. Um, Harriet Monroe came and spoke. Jesse Rittenhouse from the Poetry Society of America. Um, Padraig Colum, Irish uh, storyteller, poet, uh, must have been a very good public speaker because they had him back four times. Um, Henry Bellaman from Chicago College when it was in Columbia. Louis Untermeyer, he was later blacklisted, but he was also a future poet laureate. Amy Lowell, she was she was kind of the high priestess of of modern poetry of free verse. Uh, very <laughs> interesting, like very strong personality, about five feet tall and about five feet wide. She she was she was she was always seen with a cigar. She smoked cigars incessantly. Uh, very uh, uh, outspoken, and she loved Charleston. She came and she said, "Oh, this is such a great place for poetry because it's it's just so visually amazing." <laughs> That's one thing John Bennett used to take because the, these poets would come and they'd stay for a couple of days, and they and John Bennett he would invariably take everyone down to the worst slum in Charleston, which is Harleston Village, in fact, where I live. Um, there was the, the seediest place in the whole city. And and he would drive them through that, and they, that was to them the the, uh, the highlight of the tour. 
It's interesting with the Poetry Society, but also with the Renaissance, uh, for example, who, from folks who were from off, like Alfred Huddy, who, mm-hmm. who became the, one of the best-known artists of the Renaissance. Uh, he was not a, a Charleston native. Uh, but the natives took all of these Yankees into their arms. Yeah. If, um, like John Bennett was accepted because he was, they knew about it. He was a famous writer. Mm-hmm. Um, Laura, Laura Bragg, uh, I think she won people over. Um, she was, she was from Massachusetts. Uh, John Bennett was from Ohio. Uh, Hervey Allen was from Pittsburgh. So, uh, right there, the original core of the poetry society was, was about half uh, Northerners. That first, the, the the 1920s was kind of an amazing time. They they had they had a lot of money, and they had a lot of reputation. Uh, when it, the people had heard of the Poetry Society through Poetry Magazine and from people, you know, if um, James Stevens read or whatever, they woke up and said, "Hey, well, if, if you know all these famous poets are reading there, maybe I should too." So the 1920s were good, but they were good from the outside. The inside, the organization was absolutely collapsing from its own weight. Uh, by, 19, by 1925, the, the, John Bennett recommended that they just refund the dues that had already been collected and shut the whole thing down. It was, the Poetry Society was a mess. And I go into that in the book. Why was it a mess, Jim? Well, they bit off more than they could chew. It okay. was, they, I think, like I said, they, they thought they were starting a franchise where they didn't have to do anything. And then they realized they'd have to coordinate all these poets, which is like herding cats. And they had to write this national journal um, that nobody wanted to do. Everybody got out of Charleston for the summer. That was when all the editing work was supposed to be done. And it, it invariably fell on John Bennett, or at least he felt, felt like it did. All right, this is about three or four years into the organization. So what happens? Obviously, it does not fold. It doesn't fold. Every time, I think, I think Bennett's, his resignations and his diatribes and his manifestos that he writes every time he's fed up, um, I think that that pretty much makes him feel better, and then I think they soothe his nerves and they get him, bring him right back. And it's probably not as bad as he thought it was, too. He's probably the kind of guy that you know the things seem worse than they are. Um, so it didn't fold; it just kept going. And what? But they just they they spent less and less time doing the, the yearbook. The yearbook went from being this, what they envisioned, a nat- national journal, to being just very much a collection of the prize-winning poems of the year. Jim, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Jim Lundy about his new book, The History of the Poetry Society of South Carolina. You refer to the time between the wars as, as the golden as the golden years. That's probably the, when people best think about the Poetry Society. But let's let's bring the organization on. After World War II, it seems to change a little bit, and then, of course, getting it into the 21st century. It had a—the membership had a hard time, of course, dealing with the issue of race. When they found out Gene Toomer— um, Let's talk about Gene Toomer. He was the first black member of the Poetry Society. He didn't consider himself necessarily any race. He called himself the first conscious member of the American race. He was mixed—he was white, black, and um, Native American. And to look at him, he he was generally— assumed to be um, from India. He, and he, looked, he really did look like he was from, in, uh, from India. And he, when he was going to college in Wisconsin, I think they, they assumed he was, uh, that was his nationality. But anyway, he joined the Poetry Society, became interested. He became aware of it when he was in uh, Spartanburg doing some research for, he had just recently become interested in his in his African-American heritage, and he went there purposely to live as a black man in the segregated South just to see what it was like. He went there with his friend uh, Waldo Frank, and 
it, for them, it was it was kind of a lark. They they had never really experienced that. He he grew up in a mostly white neighborhood, uh, in his grandparents' house. His his grandfather was the first black governor of uh, Louisiana, Pinckney Pinchback, during um, Reconstruction. Reconstruction. But he grew up in that kind of situation, so he he was not familiar with what it was like to be an African American in the Deep South, and. He went to Spartanburg, found out about it, what it was like. He wrote this beautiful book, Kane, and I can recommend that to anyone. It is still in print. It's, um, it's a masterpiece, really. Um, and he joined the Poetry Society. He found out about it during his time in Spartanburg, and he was really excited about it. They didn't know he was black, and they accepted him. And, but when it came time to put the yearbook together that year, John Bennett got a heads up from somebody telling him, hey, did you know that this gene tumor is black? And Bennett went into crisis mode. He, he, was, he thought that everybody would resign from the Poetry Society if they found out. So uh, they didn't really know how to handle it. Uh, he was a paid member. He was entitled to certain things. He submitted his work uh, for the yearbook when they have the list of, of publications and things that you've had published and all those for members, they would normally have included that. What they decided to do was to leave it out of the yearbook completely. They did not include his book and they left his name in, but they figured no one would recognize it. And I think that's true. I don't think anybody recognized his name. And so they kind of dodged that bullet. I don't really know if it was would have been as bad as as all that. He was a, but but he was not a member after that one year. They didn't. Oh, they didn't invite him back. They didn't send him a renewal. Okay, that's yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, and I think yeah, once he figured out that he got snubbed, he, I don't think he was all that happy about it. Well, the society seemed to have it. Still became it. Still was very much a white elite organization. Well after World War II. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, it uh, it lasted an embarrassing long time. So yes, the 1920s were kind of a great time, a uh, very hard time for the organization, but a very good time for poetry. 1930s were a very hard time for the organization uh, monetarily. The members just dropped out in droves, but they what it was, turned out to be is a great time for poetry because the poets were hurting, and they were willing to take a whole lot less than they were willing to take in the 1920s. So all of a sudden, some huge names, including Edna St. Vincent Millay, Gertrude Stein, Thornton Wilder, Sherwood Anderson, they all came to read for the Poetry Society for, uh, for a, pit- a, a pittance. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that turned out to be a, a boon, an unexpected boon for the society, even though their membership was down. Um, 1940, World War II came. The um, they decided they were going to take a, a hiatus. There was a a group of writers that got together every week to critique poems. They decided the writers group would continue going through the, that hiatus. The writers group's uh, forum meeting every May would take place, but otherwise there would be no meetings. There would be no memberships, and there'd be no dues. And that's how they weathered World War II. But after World War II was over, they had to start over. They were literally starting from scratch. So the, so the Citadel's English department comes to the rescue. It does. I think it, it wasn't necessarily at first. It wasn't the institution of the Citadel that came to the rescue. It was some native Charlestonians who were Citadel professors. Mm-hmm. The first Citadel professor during the Depression was uh, Alston Days, mm-hmm. who was, um, he was, he's well known for the, his, his work in the preservation movement. And he was an old Charlestonian. Uh, he was part of that group. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't think it was he was president because he was in the Citadel. I think he was president and he happened to be in the Citadel. And then he was replaced by Hugh Swinton McGillivray, who was also old Charlestonian name. That's how the Citadel kind of came into it, I think. And then later, the Citadel, it just, it, I think it snowballed. So Citadel professors were inviting other Citadel professors. In, in my book alone, I mentioned 31 Citadel professors who were part of, leadership of, 
um, readers to active in the Poetry Society, 31 professors. And that's not even counting members who didn't merit a, any kind of mention. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, they pretty much rebuilt the Poetry Society after World War II, starting from nothing, rebuilt it, and remained in power right into the 1970s. All told, there's something like 53 years of Citadel participation on the board. Let's get beyond the 1970s. And there's still this vexing issue of race hanging out there. Okay. Race-wise, it obviously started out as a whites-only organization. It really could not have been otherwise. There were, there were like Edwin Harleston was in Charleston at that time. He would have been a great member for the Poetry Society. But he... Um, well, they probably learned the lesson when uh, Laura Bragg wanted to do an exhibition of his paintings. And uh, yeah. it was blocked because he was an yeah. African-American. The city wasn't ready for it. The state wasn't ready for it. The South wasn't ready for it. But during the 60s, you know, things changed. At, in the late 50s, now there's never, you will never find, I have never found, any document from the Poetry Society that says we are a whites-only organization. We don't allow uh, black people in this organization. But it was it was so well understood by everybody they didn't have to say that at first and then at the end of the 50s the writing was on the wall there were protests there were sit-ins they knew that at some point an african american was going to try to join the poetry society so they tightened up the membership rules that you had to be invited to join by two members of the poetry society and to be accepted by the president and i believe that um, those rules, which were never in place before the 19, end of the 1950s, were exactly to keep out black people. Yeah. I mean, th- this this is true with many things in the South. This is a reaction to Brown v. You know, the Board of Education decision, the great desegregation. Uh, even though it doesn't take place by many white Southerners, they they see this is this is what's going to happen, and so we're going to sort of circle the wagons. Right. And they did. They circled the wagons. And right at the same time, um, the 60s came. And the 60s were a lot of competition for this little poetry society of an aging membership. And by the 1980s, there were more people, there were more poetry society members over 90 than there were under 30. So how did it survive? Well... (laughs) I don't know. I, you know, how it survived is by there were every generation of the Poetry Society has sent a savior. There's been one person who would bring the Poetry Society back to life despite all odds and despite uh, apathy by the rest of the board. That savior of that era was John Doyle Jr. He was a Citadel professor, English professor. He holds the record for the longest number of years of being president. And he really put his heart and soul into it. He kept the Poetry Society alive. But I believe also that he doggedly resisted any uh, attempts to desegregate the um, Poetry Society. Are there black members today? There are, but we have been, it's been an uphill battle. And it's embarrassing for me to even say this. And I don't think by the 1980s that it was intentionally whites only. I think it was just by... Inertia. It was. I don't think anyone was trying to make it otherwise. But the first black member of the Poetry Society came in the 1980s, and the first black board member came in 1991. And the first time a black person ever read for the Poetry Society was in 1993. Carrie Ellen McRae. Yeah, yeah, a dear person. I knew. I knew Carrie. Uh, yeah. And so she was, so that is well, over 70 years after the founding of the Poetry Society is when we had our first. Meanwhile, you know, all these other th- institutions had been desegregated. The College of Charleston had black students. The Citadel had black students. So even the Citadel professors who were now teaching to all races were not trying to enable that for the Poetry Society. Um, we have done a lot of work to make up for that. Um, now it's completely different. Um, and I should also say that it was during those years that women were also, like, for example, there was a 12-year period where not one single woman was allowed to speak to the Poetry Society uh, during Citadel control. 
So it was women were also marginalized in the group. The 21st century is a, a whole different story for the Poetry Society. Well, you obviously were in a leadership position very early in the 21st century. Yes. Things are really changing then. There had been some attempts to change things, um, but Susan Myers really took it to a new level. So she was working to change things rather than just kind of letting things change. All right. What does the society do today? Well, we do a lot of what we've always done, which is to have contests. We have two rounds of spring and fall. We have now they are open to anyone, um, but they're not. This is not like the blind man prize, which which was equivalent of four thousand dollars. This is these are smaller prizes. We're a smaller group. We're we're a we're scaled down. Uh, and it's also a group of people who genuinely like poetry. They're not there because that's where the place to be or, the, you know, the, for, for networking. It's not like that at, at all. It's, and there's, there's a lot more writers now in the Poetry Society than probably at any time in history. Uh, people are actively writing and being published. So it's, it's, it's now it's really about poetry. All right, how, how large is the group? Is that... You said it's not; it's much smaller, but you're all active, uh, uh, creative writers. Right. Well, we we tend to average a membership of about 140 members a year. We our our meetings are open to anyone; they're open to the public. Uh, up until uh, COVID, we were meeting at the Library Society, Charleston Library Society on King Street. Um, we have been meeting by Zoom. During uh, COVID, we do meetings from September through May, one meeting per month. Then we also have workshops. Then we have regional events. Then we probably do some special events. So we do a lot more than than most of the years in the past. And we're also, especially now through Zoom, all of a sudden we are the Poetry Society of South Carolina. So people from all over and from all over the country uh, join in our Zoom meetings now. Do you still bring in a big name every year like a Gertrude Stein or a Robert Frost? <laughs> Poets we get nowadays are usually college professors. They usually have some reputation. They're almost always widely published. Um, but they're not the Gertrude Steins of their, this generation. They're not the um, Robert Frost or the Carl Sandbergs, that, which is not to say that these aren't wonderful poetry readings. They're, they're great. And I think maybe a future generation, when somebody's writing the 200th anniversary book, they will say, and they even got, you know, so-and-so who at that time wasn't even famous at all and went on to become the poet laureate or whatever. So you never really know. And I think a lot of the, the in that golden era, those poets, um, they, they achieved fame later too. So we think of them as a big name now, but they weren't necessarily big when they, when they read. Like Thornton Wilder, he wasn't considered a playwright when he read. He, uh, Our Town hadn't come out yet. Who is your favorite contemporary poet? Huh. Uh, I would say Tony Hoagland. He's uh, deceased. Uh, he, he died a few years ago. Uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, Barbara Hamby, who read for the Poetry Society, uh, she's amazing. She's one of my favorites. There's, there's a lot of good stuff out there. It's, the poetry has never stopped, but the, the audience comes and goes. That's the thing. It's, and I think it's coming back right now. There's a, there's a new trend towards poetry. Just like after World War I, there was a, it was a fad, and I think now it's, it's also hot. People have, have come through COVID, and they've broadened their horizons. Well, and maybe that's something good to say about social media. It's easier to put things out there. It is, and it, it's, it's easier to participate okay. uh, through Zoom. Because even when we go back in person, we are going to still live Zoom things. So no matter where you are, you can be part of the Poetry Society of South Carolina. All right. Jim, Alfred's given me the wind-up sign. So any last words that you want to give to our listeners before we sign off today? Well, I did write a limerick for today. Okay. If you want to hear it. Yes, we do. Walter, this is in honor of your 21st anniversary season. I congratulate you on that because I know how much work it is. In fact, our organizations, uh, the Poetry Society has had about 700 readings in its history, and I believe you have also done about 700 shows. So Yes. Although <laughs> it didn't take you 100 years. Um, there once was a guy named Walter 
whose show for 20 years never faltered. COVID came, though, and disrupted the flow. They ran encores, so the show stayed unaltered. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and I, th I think on that note, Jim Lundy, the author of The History of the Poetry Society of South Carolina, 1920 to 2021, I think we'll sign off. Thank you for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. The Poetry Society of South Carolina, or as most locals really called it, the Charleston Poetry Society, really was a nexus or a crossroads of talented individuals in the 1920s and 30s, preservationists, painters, writers, who created what is called the Charleston Renaissance. Is an important era in the history of the port city and actually in American history. Jim Lundy's book is not just about the glory years of the Charleston Renaissance. It includes interesting discussions about the changing nature of the society in the post-World War II period that reflect changes in Charleston, South Carolina, and America. And he takes it up to the present day, and the organization today really is the Poetry Society of South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.